Welcome to the Health Beat, a podcast created by medical students that takes the current pulse of public health and medical news. I'm Neha Anand, and I'm Vimal Kanduri. In today's episode, we're going to do a deep dive into the current state of the vaccine rollout during the COVID-19 pandemic. Beyond discussing the current rollout numbers and the types of vaccines that are now available, we will talk about the recent controversies around some of the vaccines as well as equity concerns in their distribution. We're also going to answer FAQs that you all have submitted on our Instagram page at COVIDUpToDate. So let's get started. Bimal, could you tell us a bit more about the current state of the vaccine rollout globally and in the U.S.? Definitely. So globally, there have been a total of 458 million vaccine doses administered as of the time of recording. That's roughly six doses for every 100 people. The Seychelles has had the highest percentage of its population receive at least one dose of the vaccine at 65%, whereas Israel has the highest percentage of fully vaccinated people at 52%. Turning now to the United States, 14% of the U.S. population is now considered fully vaccinated. So that means that they've received either two doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine or Moderna vaccine, or a single dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And at least 25% of the US population has been at least partially vaccinated, meaning that they've received at least one shot of the two-shot vaccines or have the full one shot from the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Within the US, New Mexico is the best performing state in terms of vaccinating its residents. 33% of New Mexicans have gotten at least one shot of the vaccine and 20% are fully vaccinated. So as you alluded to, there are three vaccines that are currently approved in the U.S. so far, and they fall into two categories of how the vaccines work. One is an mRNA vaccine, so that's the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. How that works is that it contains a piece of RNA that contains the instructions to make the spike protein that your immune system responds to. So you can think of this as like printed instructions that the vaccine delivers to stimulate your immune system. On the other hand, there's the adenovirus vector vaccine, which is the type that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine falls into, as well as the Oxford and AstraZeneca vaccine, which has been approved not in the U.S., but in other places around the world. And this adenovirus vector carries DNA instructions that will then be used by the cells in your body to also make the spike protein that your immune system responds to. So it's a little different than the mRNA vaccine in that You can think about it that your cells have to download instructions rather than getting printed instructions from mRNA. The two vaccines work slightly differently, but both types have been shown to be effective in terms of reducing symptomatic COVID. So what are those efficacy numbers exactly? So as you had mentioned, there have been three vaccines approved in the U.S. so far. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, one of the mRNA vaccines that you had talked about, reported an efficacy number of 95% while the Moderna vaccine, the other mRNA vaccine that's been approved in the U.S., reported an efficacy number of 94%. Now, the adenoviral vaccine that's been approved in the U.S., the Johnson & Johnson one-shot vaccine, reported an efficacy number of 72% in the U.S., along with 64% in its trial in South Africa and 61% in its trial in Latin America. Those last two numbers are important because those regions have seen high prevalences of variants that have been circulating. So those numbers are really important to report as well. Additionally, the AstraZeneca vaccine that is being used in many countries but has not yet been approved in the U.S. 
recently released results of a study in the United States that showed 79% efficacy in a US trial. But there has been some controversy about that number with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And Neha, would you like to take us through some of that controversy? Yeah, recently after AstraZeneca released this encouraging number of 79% efficacy in the US, the independence panel of medical experts that is helping to oversee AstraZeneca's trial sent a letter to federal officials that said that the data might actually be showing that the efficacy between 69 to 74% instead of 79%, and that AstraZeneca might be selecting certain data to present. And this is controversial because it's important for companies to be transparent about their data and their efficacy in order to increase confidence in the vaccines being distributed. Even though the efficacy might be lower between 69 to 74%, that's still pretty high for vaccine efficacy against the coronavirus. While the efficacy results may look different at first glance, it's difficult to compare them directly. The reason we say that is because the trials were conducted at different times during the pandemic. For example, Johnson & Johnson's trial was conducted at a later stage of the pandemic when case numbers in the U.S. were higher and when there may have been a higher number and prevalence of variants. So it's difficult to compare those efficacy numbers directly. And they're all very effective vaccines. This means that you should get the vaccine that is offered to you, regardless of which one it is. And when it comes to the most important metrics, so preventing severe disease, they're all highly effective. And they're all 100% effective at preventing hospitalization and death. So this means that these are all really important tools in the public health arsenal to fight COVID-19, and you should take whichever vaccine is offered to you. Turning back now to the AstraZeneca vaccine, there have been some controversial reports recently out of Europe where the AstraZeneca vaccine has been in fairly wide use. Now, this concern came from roughly 30 case reports of blood clots in Europe occurring after the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine which led more than a dozen European countries to suspend use of the vaccine. Neha, would you like to take us through this controversy as well? Yeah, so there's definitely been concern about this, but it's been emphasized that a causal link has not been found yet between the vaccine and blood clots forming, and it's still being investigated. In fact, the European Medicines Agency, which is the regulatory body in Europe, has said that there's been no increase in overall risk of blood clots, There have been about 25 case reports of this among the roughly 20 million people who've received the shot. So that's almost like a one in a million chance of this happening. The EMA also hasn't ruled out a possible connection entirely between the vaccine and clot. They do say that it might be possible, but deserves further analysis. But again, they emphasize that it's very rare. This is certainly concerning, particularly with the suspension of the vaccination efforts, which many news outlets have reported could set back progress in Europe where the vaccine rollout in many places has already faltered. So now we'd like to turn to another topic that's certainly gotten a lot of attention when it comes to vaccines, and that's the question of equity in vaccine distribution. There's been controversy in Maryland, for example, around the allocation of doses. There were concerns that vaccination rates in the state's largest city of Baltimore we're lagging behind the rest of the state. And there's also implications for this when it comes to equity across racial groups as well. Baltimore is a majority Black city, and in Maryland, even though the state is 30% African-American, only 17% of vaccine recipients are African-American. Part of this 
controversy was really highlighted when state's governor, Larry Hogan, claimed that Baltimore had gotten more doses than it was entitled to, despite the fact that Baltimore, when the quote was made late last month, lagged much of the rest of the state in vaccination rates. Part of the reason for that discrepancy is that 60% of the doses that were going to Baltimore City were actually going to people who lived outside of the city limits. This was partly a consequence of Baltimore having large hospitals that were included in its vaccine allocation. And these hospitals, for example, Johns Hopkins and the University of Maryland, serve very large catchment areas, including many people who live outside of city limits of Baltimore. And 75% of Baltimore's doses at the time were going to hospitals within the city. So one of the narratives about why there might be inequities in the vaccine rollouts because there's vaccine hesitancy among minority communities. And while it's important to acknowledge that there is a historical mistrust of medical institutions and scientific experiments in minority and marginalized communities, that narrative cannot be the only reason to explain why there are vaccine inequities. And saying that is almost a kind of political way to navigate away from taking responsibility to improve equity. Another reason why there may be inequities in terms of the rollout is because of how people can sign up for vaccines. Largely, states and counties have sign-up forms for people who are eligible, but that requires having good access to internet and technology and having a good knowledge about how to use both of those. So you can see how that might be hard for certain populations if they don't have access to internet or technology or know how to navigate like sometimes confusing sites. And it's important when thinking about solutions to combat the vaccine rollout inequity to acknowledge these barriers of technology. Some states have implemented phone lines to try to overcome this issue about information inequity that might arise from these technological barriers. Some places have taken different approaches to make their vaccine rollout more equitable. One approach that my hometown of Milwaukee has taken is that in certain zip codes that have been identified as high risk for inequitable outcomes, they've actually made all individuals who are 16 and older in those zip codes eligible for the vaccine. They even have walk-in vaccination clinics where people can come and get vaccinated without appointments. And so this is one way in which Milwaukee, which like many cities in the U.S. has significant health disparities, is trying to address the potential inequities that could arise in vaccine distribution. And it's important to note that this is not simply a U.S. issue. This is a global issue. As many wealthy countries have been vaccinating large proportions of their populations, many lower and middle income countries haven't even started to vaccinate their, their populations yet. Yeah, and there's some pretty alarming statistics that really highlight the global inequities of vaccine distribution. So for example, though even though high-income countries only represent a fifth of the global adult population, they've purchased more than half of all the vaccine doses available right now. And it's estimated that due to this unequal distribution, most of the world's population won't be vaccinated until at least 2023. Now let's move on to a common concern about whether these vaccines may still work with the new variants that have emerged. What do we know about that, Gimel? So both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines have shown some promise against the B117 variant, which emerged in the United Kingdom last year and which has been rapidly spreading in the U.S. in the past couple of months. 
in laboratory studies, Pfizer and Moderna both showed good potential efficacy against the B117 variant. And Pfizer also put out a press release that stated that it also showed in real world settings against the B117 variant as well. And in terms of the B1351 variant that emerged in South Africa, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine trial results found that it remains effective there, as well as against the P1, P2 variant that emerged in Brazil. And the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, they were less effective against the B1351 variant from South Africa in antibody lab tests, though this is not the same as doing a real-world trial. So it would give us an expectation that in a real-world trial, these vaccines would be less effective, but that is still to be confirmed. And we just want to emphasize, as we've done in this part of the episode, is to not use the geographic names of the variants to avoid creating stigma against where these variants came from. So after hearing about all this, you may be wondering when are vaccines going to be available to everybody? President Biden has announced that all adults in the U.S. will be eligible by May 1st to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. And many states are planning to open up eligibility to everyone ahead of that deadline. And some states have already done so. As of the time of this recording, Alaska, Mississippi, and West Virginia have opened up eligibility to, to all adults in their state and everyone over the age of 16 with the goal of vaccinating as many people as possible. President Biden has also announced that there will be enough doses for all adults in the U.S. by the end of May. And currently, trials for children are starting up to see if the vaccines are effective in children. And once we know the results of that, hopefully children can be included as well, perhaps later on this year or next year. Now, there's also this question of herd immunity. The goal of mass vaccination campaigns is generally to reach herd immunity. That's where enough of the population has immunity to the virus that the virus won't have significant transmission. And it's hard to say for certain when we'll reach the herd immunity threshold or even what specific number we need. But many experts are saying up to 90% of the U.S. population may need to be vaccinated before we reach herd immunity. We are on track to reach that number by the end of July at current vaccination rates. And part of the reason there's uncertainty about the actual number is that we are continuing to learn more and more about this disease. And we're also seeing variants emerge that could change the picture a little bit. But in general, we're on track to reach that 90% number by the end of July. So if you have gotten vaccinated, you may be wondering how that may impact how you can interact with others while we're still in the middle of this pandemic. The CDC recently released interim recommendations for people who are fully vaccinated in terms of what activities they can do. These recommendations say that fully vaccinated people can visit other fully vaccinated people indoors without wearing masks or physically distancing. But we just want to emphasize that these are small gatherings, not large gatherings of fully vaccinated people. Fully vaccinated people could also visit unvaccinated people from a single household, but the people from this household have to be at low risk for severe COVID-19. And they can visit the single household in an indoor setting without wearing masks or physically distancing, but emphasizing again that it's a single household and they have to be at low risk for severe COVID-19. So for example, that could be grandparents who visit their children or grandchildren who are unvaccinated if the grandparents have been vaccinated, 
and the children and grandchildren are at low risk for severe COVID. The CDC also says that those who are fully vaccinated don't need to quarantine or get tested if they have a known exposure to someone who has had COVID-19 if the vaccinated person is asymptomatic. And all of these guidelines, again, only apply if you've received the final dose of whichever vaccine you get in at least two weeks ago, because it takes two weeks to develop full immunity. So we've gone through a lot of information and we actually received a lot of questions through our social media page about the vaccine rollout. Let's go through some of your questions. So how long does vaccine immunity last? The answer to that question is we really don't know how long immunity lasts at this time. Part of the problem is that the vaccines haven't really been out for long enough for us to have that information. So more research and more data is needed to figure that out. And it is possible that we may need a booster vaccine in the future, particularly given the emergence of variants. But right now, we're not sure that whether that will be necessary or how long the immunity lasts. The next question is, if, if I've received a vaccine, will that affect the results of my diagnostic testing for COVID? That's a very interesting question. Getting the vaccine shouldn't affect the diagnostic testing. So that is if you were to get a PCR antigen test for the virus, getting a sample from your nose, your throat, or your mouth. And that's because the vaccines don't actually contain a live virus. Even though your body is building an immune response, you shouldn't be testing positive for having the actual coronavirus if you were to get tested. The next question is, are there any negative consequences to not waiting 90 days after being infected with COVID-19 to get the vaccine? That's a good question. I want to emphasize that if you are currently sick with COVID-19, you should defer until you've recovered to receive the vaccine. That's because if you have COVID-19, you should really be isolating and either not leaving your place of residence or if you need medical care, you know, only to get that medical care. But you should wait until you've recovered and are no longer infectious to receive the vaccine. The 90 days only applies to people who have received monoclonal antibody treatment. So if you had COVID-19 and were treated with monoclonal antibody therapies, then you should wait 90 days after stopping treatment to get the vaccine. And that's partly because there may be some interference between antibody treatments and the vaccine. However, you don't need to wait 90 days after getting infected if you didn't receive any of those monoclonal antibody treatments to receive the vaccine. If you have had COVID-19 and didn't get a monoclonal antibody treatment, you can get the vaccine once you recover and are no longer infectious. Next, can someone who is fully vaccinated be a carrier or a transmitter of, of the virus or the new variants? That's a great question. While there's preliminary data that is promising for the vaccines reducing transmission of the original coronavirus that caused the pandemic, we don't have enough data to definitely say that vaccinated people can't transmit that original virus. And we're also unsure about whether the vaccines reduce transmission of the variants of the virus as well, because we don't have enough data. That's why it's still recommended that even if you're fully vaccinated, you take precautions like wearing a mask, physically distancing, and practicing good hand hygiene. We'll learn more about whether the vaccines actually reduce transmission as more data comes out and as more people get vaccinated. Last question is, what are the side effects that you may experience after getting the vaccine? Some people may not experience any side effects at all, but the most common side effects include pain, redness, swelling around the site where you get the shot, as well as chills, fever, nausea, tiredness, muscle pain, or headaches. And these side effects usually go away in about a few days. 
If you have any specific questions about the vaccines and their side effects or anything else related to the vaccine, you should contact your healthcare provider to discuss them more. If you haven't gotten the vaccine yet, check your state or local county health department if you're in the U.S. to see if you're eligible and where you may be able to get the vaccine. And if you are eligible, we definitely encourage you to sign up. And you may be concerned that you feel like you're healthy, maybe low risk for COVID-19, and you may be concerned that you are taking a dose from someone who needs it more. You certainly shouldn't falsify information or lie to become eligible for the vaccine. But if you do fall into eligibility criteria, you are encouraged to get it once it's offered. As Melinda Wenner-Moyer and Kwame Anthony Appiah have written in the New York Times, declining a dose doesn't guarantee that it'll go to someone at higher risk. And by getting your shot, you are contributing to the overall health of your community and taking a step forward to ending the pandemic. So if you are eligible for the vaccine, we do encourage you to sign up. We covered a lot of topics, and uh, I think we're only going to learn more about the vaccines in the months ahead. If you have any questions related to the vaccines or the pandemic in general, feel free to reach out to our social media account at COVID Up to Date. That's at C O V I D U P, the number two D A T E, at COVID Up to Date. If you'd like more information about the vaccines, you can always check out the CDC. Thanks so much, Vimal, for joining me on this episode. Definitely. And if there's one takeaway from this, while this has been a really, really difficult year of the pandemic, there is hope and, and reason for optimism on the horizon. And yeah. I just want to say thank you so much for, for inviting me to join for this episode of the podcast. If you've made it this far, you must be really interested in current health news topics. Follow us on COVID Up to Date for news headlines related to the pandemic, and make sure to subscribe to The Health Beat on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, be sure to give us a great review and let us know what topics you want covered in the future. See you next time!